Hello and welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams, and this is episode 12. Today on the podcast is Irina Lawrence of Flying Fibers out of York County, Pennsylvania. Irina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So can you just start us all off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, definitely. So um, I kind of joke that I am co-owner and second shepherdess in command of Flying Fibers and Flying Fibers Flock. Um, I didn't ever think that I was going to end up being a full-time fiber artist, I guess would be kind of my description. Um, so essentially what happens is um, my mom taught me at a very, very, very young age all sorts of fiber arts, and she's actually technically my business partner. Uh, sometimes they say never to go into it with family, but thus far it seems to be working amazingly. So she taught me fiber arts from a very young age and I just kind of kept involved with it through 4-H and we started, I guess my mom started importing British wool that you couldn't get in this country uh, into the States and having and selling it at fiber festivals like Maryland Sheep and Wool and Um, all that kind of stuff. And she's a full-time professor, so she's got a lot of stuff on her hands. But at the time, she decided 10 years ago to open up a shop. And I started working there on the weekends. And needless to say, it's what I do full-time now. So I I co-own the shop with her. And then we both kind of co-shepherd on our property in York County, Pennsylvania. And we specialize in British sheep uh, because my dad was born and raised in Yorkshire. So we've got a really strong connection to the UK and all of the amazing uh, wool industry and wools that come out of there. So yeah, so I guess I'm a full-time fiber artist. I don't really know what else to, you know, I also manage our retail shop, but I, I'm a sheep, I'm a shepherd first and foremost, I guess. So yeah, well, it sounds like anybody's you know who's in doing fiber arts like kind of the dream right who who doesn't want right. to be a full-time fiber artist right it is it's it's a lot of fun it's a it's super stressful like right now I am going over uh different retirement plans because I am pretty much self-employed like the mm. you know we're not we're not a massive corporation so I'm taking you know my paycheck and I'm investing so there's stuff that you know you always have to think about like oh yeah she sits around and she knits all day but I'm also like the admin I'm the sales associate I teach the classes I take care of the sheep when like my mom has uh, Mondays and Wednesdays are like really long teaching days for her. So like those are my days to do the farm by myself and stuff. And so there's like all these other factors that go into it, but I would not change it for the world like at all. But it's a, it's a, it's a lot hustle. It's a hustle. That's what I say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really impressive actually. Yeah. And I understand it's, you know, there's just so much that goes into it, especially with this day and age, because not only are you, you know, working on like the retail side of it. And then you're also doing the shepherding side of it. But then on top of that, 
now you throw social media into the mix. Yeah. Because that is such a huge part of marketing. It and is. I can't believe that you guys have time to do all of that. So ironically enough, I actually went to university uh, expecting to, so I was a dual major, I was bio-French, and I was going to go away and study ecology in the south of France, and I decided at the end of my freshman year that I didn't want to be a research scientist. I actually wanted to take over the shop because my, my mom was getting incredibly stressed. We had a few sales associates, but essentially she was working seven days a week and paying other people to like run the shop while she couldn't be there. And the dynamic, like it worked, but she just felt like the heart of what she wanted just maybe wasn't completely into it. And so she's like, I'm just going to close and focus on the sheets and still do marriage. Maryland Sheep and Wool, and we, we do a few other local shows. Um, at the time, we were doing a few local shows in the area, and I was just like, but that's all I want to do. So I actually graduated with a marketing degree in the end. I changed over everything. So social media, I took a lot of courses in social media because it is such it's the new age people, you know, they don't go, Oh, can I have a business card? They go, Oh, what's your Insta handle? And, and that's, that's what you have to be ready for. So it's amazing. I mean, if Facebook and Instagram weren't as developed as they were, I, I don't know what would happen because I feel as though there's such an amazing following and you can reach all of these amazing people. Like we made a connection via Instagram. You would have no idea if you were just trying to look through websites who we are, what we do, but that Instagram gives you that like behind the scenes look and, you know, and that's what I feel like people connect with the most. So, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, so just out of curiosity, so I know that, you know, your mom opened the shop quite a while ago. So did she have sheep at that point or did she have the shop first or kind of what started it? Yeah, it kind of all happened at the same time. We had been traveling around um, the East Coast and the probably, I guess we traveled around the Midwest. We did a few shows in Michigan and Ohio and stuff. And um, we were selling the British wool that my mom would import and some was kept natural. And she brought in combed top and she would dye some. And we had some hand dyed stuff. And uh, then in July of 2009, we found a breeder in Michigan that raised Wensleydales and he had a trio. And so we made the, you know, 12, 13 hour drive, whatever it was out to Michigan. And we picked up these ewes. Um, We had a crossbred sheep at a friend's farm. So like we still lived in the suburbs at this point. Um, We pretty much lived in the suburbs up until about six months ago. Um, So we rented a lot. We, yeah, we pasture boarded a lot. And so our first few sheep were held at friend's farms. And then we found this pasture board. And then I guess it'll be five years ago. Um, pretty soon coming up that we then purchased the, what I call like the main farm. Um, we purchased the main farm and that's just land and outbuildings for the animals. And we commute there like a job and, you know, we take care of the animals, except it's, it's off the grid. So we do a lot of stuff, um, pretty, you know, pretty old school. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, so we got the Wensleydale used in July of 2009, and then in November of 2009, we opened the bricks and mortar store. So the 
the start of our British long wool shepherding journey and the start of our wool shop kind of all accumulated within the same year. So it's kind of one of those 2009 is like a really big thing. Like we just celebrated 10 years at the shop. We just celebrated, you know, 10 years of having Wensleydales on our, of our own, you know, breeding and on our farm. So it was pretty exciting. It kind of all just spiraled at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, no, that is exciting. I mean, sometimes it seems like, um, and I hate to say this, but there aren't that terribly many yarn shops that I can think of, especially around my area, that have made it 10 years. So that's so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. We are incredibly grateful for the community. And I think it helps that we're multifaceted, right? We, you know, we have the sheep. Um, we have our, we've started manufacturing our own commercial yarn line. We work really closely with the small fiber mills and our local shearers. To, so I think it's a community effort. I can't say that we ourselves have kept the shop open for 10 years. It's, it's the connections and the amazing people that we've met and the amazing people that actually like volunteered for the first year when, you know, we had just enough money to get the inventory and pay the rent, you know? So, um, and it's a family thing as well, right? I couldn't do it without the support of like my, you know, my family and, you know, all that stuff. So it's, it's 10 years is pretty impressive. We keep thinking about it. And the more we think about it, we're like, wow, this is, it's, it's kind of a lot. Now we're like, oh, I got to make the next 10 just as great, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it sounds like you guys have the right combination of spices to make that happen. So yeah, let's cross our fingers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we talked a little bit about, uh, the breed. So you have Wensleydale, you have, uh, is it Lester Longwells? Yes. And then the lesson, Teeswater, right? So we actually have Shetlands now. We oh, did Shetlands. try to, yeah. So we did try to get into Teeswaters. Um, but because we're mainly a fiber flock, we don't actually do a ton of breeding stock and we don't really do the meat industry. So if you look at the Teeswater and the Wensleydale fiber, they're practically the same. The Wensleydale was more so developed as like a show breed in England back in the 1800s. They actually took a blue cap, which was a Lester Longwell ram, and they bred it to a Teeswater hog it and they got a Wensleydale so if you you know that was the original way that they started building the Wensleydale back in England and so obviously there was you know some selective breeding after that but that was the original blend so the Wensleydale is known as the finest of the luster long wools but tease waters come very very close and when we had all the yarn manufactured you you know, it took us it was if we didn't have the names of the sheep on it we probably wouldn't have been able to figure out kind of the Wensleydale versus the Teeswater just by like look and feel. Um, and so for us, we wanted to hone in on what we specialized in from the beginning, which was Wensleydale. And I, the Lester Longwells are mine. And then the Shetlands are just really great personalities to add to the farm. And they're a little bit different in their fiber, con- you know, in the way their fiber is because they're not long wools, but they're not medium grade you know they're this really interesting fine medium long mix depending on what breeding stock you get so they add a good good set of uh you know colors as well to our flock yarn um so that's always positive because Wensleydales and Lester's are just natural white and natural black so there's not a lot of different shade variation there oh sure sure so I know that you guys, you talked about getting your trio of the Wensleydales. Like, how did you come into some of the other breeds? So the Lester Longwools, um, my, so the 
a kind of the original satellite flock people when the Lester Long were re-imported into the country in the 90s, um, Kelly Miller and Joan Henry, they saw me out and about at Mother Earth News Fair. We were Longwell representatives there. They saw me at Rhinebeck um, touting the Wensleydale. And they were just like, hey, you're really, you know, you just want to educate. Like our whole mission on the sheep side of thing is uh, preservation through education, right? Like we, we don't have 100 acres to raise a thousand head of sheep, but if we can just get one person to knit with that yarn and realize why it's so special, you're a step closer to saving that breed. Um, so Kelly and Joan saw me out and about and they were just like, you know, would you like some Lester Longwools? So I was actually gifted a breeding pair in 2013 of Lester Longwools and um, that's how I got my start with them. And they're amazing. They've got really great strong fiber, um, but they're also, they've got such great personalities. Them and the Wensleydales, uh, they're just kind of, they're very regal, I guess, is like the way to describe oh, them. Sure. And they're, but they're friendly and they're kind, but they also know that like, yes, we are beautiful sheep and our wool is amazing. <laughs> and so we will pose in photos for you, right? Um, and then in 2017, we actually went to Tamara White's farm, um, Tammy from Wing and a Prayer, who you had interviewed a few months ago. And she, we were doing, we were part of her New England Fiber Arts Summit. We had sold her a Wensleydale Ram, and so we went up to participate. Um, and we were in the pasture with the sheep, and Jerry and I, my mom and I, hung back because we have sheep. And so, you know, like it was fine. And these two Shetlands like went through the crowd and came up to us. And one of the, Shet the Shetland U laid her head on my mom's shoulder and this Shetland weather like came up and was like sniffing me and hanging out with me. So needless to say, we had to take them home because they were so amazing. <laughs> so that's how Dot and Percy came to our farm. And uh, they definitely multiply quite fast because we got a Shetland Ram Cypress from Western Pennsylvania. And now we are up to 10 Shetlands, I think. So it went from three to 10 very fast. Wow. Yeah. So how many, how many head do you have in total? Mm, 24 to 30. Um, I think we're at 24 right now. We try to keep it at about 25. We sold off a few of our lambs from this season. So that was, that's why the number's a little bit, you know. But yeah, 24 to 24 to 25 is usually what we try to keep just because it allows us to manage everything and it also gives us enough fiber to make it through the season until the milk can, you know, have more spun up and stuff. So sure. it's good. And I have a question too, kind of going back to some of the history of everything. Did either of your parents have any like farming in their background? My mom was born and raised in the city of Buffalo in New York. Um, so no, she, she wanted to farm her entire life though. Like she said, uh, finally, at, you know, an upper fifties, she achieved her dream of owning her farm because they just purchased a farm at, so they only live about four minutes from the main farm. And then they've got the farm at with a few of the, a few of the older ewes um, that, that are there now. So she's, absolutely pleased with that and my dad being born and raised in Yorkshire my aunt did some history and there were farmers back in like the 1800s but nothing recently both of his his mom was a professional cook and then his dad was a headmaster and so they 
they they never lived on a farm. They never worked on a farm. He grew up in a seaside town called Whitby um, up in north of England. And so there wasn't a ton of opportunity for agricultural adventures there. Um, so no, not not really. But they've fallen into their roles as farmers quite nicely, I feel like. You know, it's amazing to watch their progression as well in this whole journey. Yeah, that's really, that's really great that, you know, that somebody's able to just, you know, take it and run with it. I mean, yeah. obviously, and be very successful. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with those, okay, sorry, that was my tangent. Now we're going back. No, you're good. <laughs> with those different breeds that you have, um, what are, what are some of the characteristics of their fibers and what are some of the differences between them just for anybody who doesn't know anything maybe about, I know we've talked about Shetlands before on here, but mm-hmm. we definitely haven't talked about Wensleydales or Lester Longwalls at all. Yeah, definitely. So the Wensleydale is like my mom's one true love. That's kind of how it all started is she found a Wensleydale jumper um, in this tiny little yarn shop called Bobbins that used to be in Whitby. She was over visiting my dad, I think, before they were married, actually. Like, I think this was, it's been a very, very long time, so over 30 years. But um, the first thing that struck her was the shine and the drape of the garment. And that's what I would say is the most impressive thing about the Wensleydale is the sheen, the strength the drape. Um, it's a beautiful fiber. The long wools, there's different lock structures, right? So most people know of the merino, which has your traditional crimp and it adds springiness to it. Um, the Wensleydales have what's called a pearl, like the pearl stitch, P-U-R-L. And it's not quite a curl, but it's not a spiral. It's this kind of interesting half zigzag, half curl. And that's what allows for for all of the really beautiful drape. So um, you can see there's like vendors online that raise Wensleydales and they'll like grow them out to like, you know, 14 inches and do this beautiful dyeing and all this stuff. And because our main thing is yarn, we tend to grow our fleeces out to about nine inches, seven to nine inches. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we work with a mill that can handle that. So that's really great. So we're on a nine month shearing schedule and the seven to nine inches allows for it to have that, that sheen and the strength and the luster and the drape, but it's also good for hand knitters because it's not so long that our mill can't process it. And so we're not only exclusively selling to spinners, but it's not short enough that you're going to get that kind of traditional, I hate to use the word, but like itch that people think of when they think Mm -hmm. of long wools. Um, They're strong fibers. They're not itchy fibers by any means. So by growing our staple lengths out slightly longer, there's less ends of the fiber per inch of yarn, and therefore it's not going to itch you as much. It's Mm. it's just going to feel durable, and it's going to have that beautiful drape. And the Lester long wool is fairly similar. They've got more of what I would describe as like an S lock structure. They've got these really big, thick, beautiful locks. Um, they've got a lot of luster as well, just like the Wensleydales do. They, on the micron scale, they are technically stronger uh, than the Wensleydales, but they, you know, if you just low, we have the mill spin with a very low twist um, so that it once again has like that really nice weight to it. So, um, 
yeah, they're both just for the luster of it, really. I mean, it's the shine that gets people. You have people walking into our booth at Fiber Festivals or into the shop, and they're just like, oh, what percentage of silk is in this? And, you know, so that, yeah, it's so beautiful and shiny. So then we just talk about, like, you know, it's it's the nature of the breed. It's the fact that they are the finest of the luster long wools. And so it means that, you know, they're not as soft necessarily as a merino, but their individual hair is just so fine in comparison to some of the other, like, long wool coarse commercial breeds that it just, it really shines and it just hits the light so interestingly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. That's really neat. Um, now I know that you said that you're on, um, with at least the Lester Longwells, uh, you're on a nine month sharing schedule. So does that mean that, that, that you're sharing at different points every year? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. Thankfully, we have a really amazing shearer who now that we've moved closer, he's about 10 minutes from our farm. So we're on a nine month shearing cycle. The Shetlands are on traditional six month, but our long wools are all on nine months. And so um, Nate sheared in July of, yeah, he sheared in July of this month so he's not going to be back again until March or April but then that'll put us at like a November shearing date um so it's it's kind of it's a roughly seven to nine month shearing schedule it just kind of depends on when winter falls and stuff so um it does we feel as though it gives the best you know product we can you know put out and it also we do it in a humane way that the sheep aren't absolutely sweltering in the summer but they're not freezing in the winter kind of deal so we've we've been able to time it really well to allow for really you know healthy sheep and really amazing fleeces yeah yeah i can imagine and i feel like also too you have the benefit of not having to worry about like a shear being overbooked, like the, during the spring season when right. most people technically, or typically, I'm sorry, are lambing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so when you are using all these fibers and creating yarn from them, or or roving, or or whatever it's turning into, do you do everything like as a purebred line or do you do any blending at all yeah we do a little bit of both mainly we try to keep it breed specific um so all of our so there's a little bit of extra stuff right so sometimes our older ewes don't necessarily grow quite as much in a year because they're older and they're just trying to like put their energy into keeping the weight on them or you know maintaining you know their their condition score and so some will pair it up by breed and then within that breed by staple length. So for example, like the batch that we got back from the mill before Maryland sheep and wool in April, um, we had, uh, there was Aggie and Sirius because they had the same staple length, but they're both North American Wensleydales, but they're younger. Right. And then we had Pete and Penny and Charlotte, who are the old guard. They were the first uh, artificial insemination babies that were born on our farm. They're, they're older, so they didn't quite grow as much or as prolifically as Aggie and Sirius did. So Pete, Penny, and Charlotte were like their own batch, but they were still all North American Wensleydales. We do have a guard llama, and we do have a few crossbred long wools because they just... 
things happen, but they're beautiful, hardy sheep. And because they've got really, really diverse genetics, then they're, they're so healthy. Um, and like, you know, we just love the long wool. So it's, you know, if we have a Lester Wensleydale cross, it's, it's, it, w- it wouldn't be the end of the world. And so we've got a guard llama, um, named Gus. And so we blend Gus merino wool and then we've got two little shetland crosses scout and celeste and they are adorable and their wool is not similar enough to the long wools to blend it in with that so we just throw gus scout and celeste all in a batch and then we have some merino in it to stretch it a little bit and so we do some blending but mainly our goal is like pure breed and you know even sheep specific when it comes to the shetlands especially because of all the colors and all stuff like that oh yeah yeah and i think i think there's something really special about sheep specific like knowing that it came from a specific sheep and you can you know, test it up against them, you know, year after year, a year mm-hmm. and see, you know, what was going on in their life. Basically. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> or also like how they were aging, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's amazing to see the color change from year to year, especially on like the black sheep. Um, they gray out just like humans do. It's really interesting. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, so you guys are in a climate that tends to get cold and get it's lots of snow, it seems like these days. Um, what kinds of things do you guys have to do around like your property to prepare for the winter? Yeah, so fortunately, the farm that my parents uh, live in, it's a really amazing setup. The people that built it were horse people. And so equine farmers tend to just put a lot of extra care into their big creatures, which is awesome, right? You know, um, you never, you never really have like a horse farm. You've got like a horse facility, which is great. Like I, you know, it's amazing. So, um, we, it's a really amazing setup and like the barn, we have like a water, you know, we've got a well, but it's got a water heater in it. And it's like, you can get hot water and like, it's very luxurious because on our other farm, the main farm where most of the, all the sheep are, um, it's, we're still farming off of the grid because, you know, I the sheep, you know, the more pasture space available for the sheep, the better. So we have to ensure that we up their hay and so that they can get their rumens going um, to stay warm. And we, you know, they all have shelters that they can go into. Now, most of the time, they actually prefer just to hang out like along the tree line. Um, they don't, we have these really great barns for them to go into. And they don't really seem to want to do that unless it's absolutely torrential, like rain or blizzards. But even still, they'll come out to say hello. And, um, Fresh water is like a big thing. We, uh, my mom attended a pastured livestock seminar and they said the biggest thing to ensure a healthy, a healthy farm slash flock is to always have fresh, clean water at all times, which, you know, we've, we, we do, but at the same time, like when they said it, it really resonated because that is like, we, you know, we have the access to the water cooler at all times. So in the winter, we have to be diligent in making sure that we always break the ice and scoop out every bit of ice possible. So the animals have fresh water until we can go down and do like the evening session where we break the ice and stuff. And so touch wood, we haven't had terrible weather here yet um we haven't had a ton of ice bucket freezing but uh, our friends up in new england are getting it so i have a feeling it's going to make its way down south a little bit sooner than we expected um 
but yeah, so we just pretty much just making sure that they have good hay in their stomachs to keep their rooming going. We always supplement with grain year round just to keep them, you know, coming up to us, being used to doing condition checks and all of that stuff. And so they get their grain, they get a good amount of hay, and then they get their, you know, ice cold water broken. And they all love like the really cold water that we get out of the creek for them. Like they all rush to it. Like it's the best thing ever. And they, yeah, it's really weird. They like take a big gulp and they like shiver. And then like they go back and they like drink another gulp and they're like, so happy it's really funny (laughs) how they like the dynamics changing in the winter you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's oh I just wish I had sheep I'll just put it that way (laughs) (laughs) um so okay so one thing that I'm really interested to ask you is about especially having had family from the UK and having gone to the UK and I know you've had interactions with some different parts of the wool industry over there, if not all of them. But um, what, like, what have you, what have you done? What have you learned? What differences between, you know, like the UK style of shepherding versus Mm -hmm. American? Like what, I just kind of want to know about that in general overall. Yeah, definitely. The biggest thing for me, like we always say that we raise our sheep the English way. I feel as though uh, shepherds in America are really quick to like lock their animals up in the barn. But, you know, it's not good to keep them in. They need, you know, air circulation and they need to be able to stretch their legs. And so um, we just our sheep are pasture raised and they'll pasture lamb and they they never get closed into a barn so like on our farm we have three-sided run-ins that they can go into which are big enough to fit all of them but most of the time like I said you'll find them just kind of up against the trees because they've got something to lean up against Um, I think that the wool show industry is very different in England I uh, got to go to Leicester England And I got to meet Sonia Glover and um, she has like the top show Lester Longwools ever. Um, And it's really amazing to see how they custom mix their own feed and they add all these extras to get really beautiful fleeces. And, you know, they do something called mob grazing, which is becoming definitely more popular in the states as well but essentially like they'll have so that for them they had four pastures that were an acre lot each and they put all of their ewes and lambs on it and they ate it down and then they moved to the next pasture and ate it down and let the other one grow up and then to the next but each pasture was actually seeded with a different sort of grass and it was to do with like giving them different nutrition at different times of the month to grow bigger, better sheep. It was a really interesting concept. Um, We had never quite seen that before. So we're actually gonna try to employ something fairly similar on our farm um, on a much smaller scale. We don't have quite as much land as they do, but we also don't have as many sheep as they do, right? And and then also like they share, I I mean, the scrapie epidemic was absolutely heart-wrenching, but they're not as caught up with the biosecurity as we are, or alternatively, the biosecurity is pretty 
well taken care of for the fact that like England itself if, is really only the size of Pennsylvania. Like if you turned Pennsylvania, if you put like, you know, Pittsburgh on the bottom and moved up to Philly, right? That's pretty much how big England is within itself. So it's easier to transport flocks. Um, they share like rams all the time, you know, so a ram might go away for two years to another farm and then go back to his farm. And so I just feel as though there's not as much problems, especially in the rare breed sheep that we raise. There's not as much problems with the genetic pool getting like smaller or, you know, people, I mean, I, I get it. We have a closed flock as well. We don't really, we, we bring in some, they get quarantined, but we don't really put, put a ton out just because, I don't know. I just feel like we're a little bit overzealous here with the kind of biosecurity aspects of things. Um, and so it's really interesting. Like they, like I said, like they just share and it's, I think that's really awesome. Um, also there are like commercial sheep farms for the wool industry, which is something we don't really do here. Like my friend Jenny in Gloucester, she raises Wensleydales and Lester Long Wools, and she is a commercial wool farmer. And it's really interesting because like in the States we have, you know, we've got farmers, but mostly they're doing crops. There's very few commercial sheep farms unless you head out West. Mm -hmm. um, and even then they're not guaranteed to be for the wool industry. I mean, there's a ton of Targi in South Dakota and stuff, which are, but I mean, that's it, you know. So it's just interesting to see how their commercial farming is for both produce and for livestock and for wool, which is really interesting as well. So, I mean, there's, there's you know, just kind of those small things. And, you know, you go and you learn and you, you work with the animals and you see what you can then do differently on your farm or say, well, yes, this obviously works for their climate, but it would be a, a horrible mess if we were to try it here. Oh, because, sure. <laughs> you know, Pennsylvania can get really, really humid and hot. We're, we're close enough to DC and Baltimore that it's, we get some of that residual humidity. So that can be kind of tough in the summers. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. So what kinds of stuff have you done over there? I mean, I know you said you've gone to like a, like wool shows, mm -hmm. um, what kinds of other things have you guys interacted with, I guess, with wool yeah. stuff over there? Oh man. So we, oh, where do I start? <laughs> um, so we, we visit, we visit a lot of farms, which we're really grateful that we're even able to do that. So, um, I know, so back before we had Wensleydales, we visited Shayla Prescott's farm up in Northumberland in the UK, and she had the largest flock of show Wensleydales at that time. Now, you know, new breeders have come in and things have changed. And we talked about, you know, all of the different animals. We looked at the different breeding techniques that she employed. She's one of the farmers in the UK that um, she at the time at least, she kept her white sheep and her natural colored sheep separate because she didn't want any um, heterozygous, essentially, genetics. So she didn't want a white sheep and a white sheep to breed and accidentally throw a black lamb because she was breeding for kind of like the, the pure animals. And it's not as much of a common practice anymore, uh, just especially now that people are kind of more comfortable in the industry again after, you know, Scrapey is, they're, they're being a bit more diligent and stuff. And so I know that then my friend Jenny, who, you know, we helped her go through, run through her sheep, and they've got these really interesting uh, scanners where they, the sheep's 
uh, given a bolus and essentially it, like you scan the sheep's stomach and it brings up all of the information and it like connects to the scale that she has so she can keep track she can keep track of weights and everything but so we helped her run through some sheep um, and we also helped we looked at the massive wool sacks that she sends to the wool board and the wool pool and it was really interesting you know you you tag it you weigh it and essentially unless you write unless essentially it's something along the lines of if you if you write to the government and you say i'm i'm a sheep farmer and i produce X amount of pounds of wool a year, and I would like to ask for a lenience so that I can keep some myself to sell. Um, you have to really sell it to the wool pool, and it's it's a really interesting concept that like anybody in the United States can get a few sheep and keep the fleeces, but in England you have to turn it over to the government, and it has to be marked, and it has to be scanned, and it has a number, and it's just really interesting. So we've done that. Um, and that was a really cool thing. I've been to a sheep auction at Woolfest, which was really cool to see all the different rare breeds go by that are just being, you know, auctioned off to different farmers. Um, I mean, I guess there's stuff like this in the States as well, but I feel like Pennsylvania, it's, it's just, it's not like you probably get this more on like the West coast. We don't have it quite as much on the East coast. We definitely have more small farms that don't really do a ton of commercial, um, kind of stuff so it's it's an interesting you know we visit wool shops and we visit we visited textile mills when we were in Scotland and it's just a really interesting thing we try to do as much woolly stuff as possible um you know in the few weeks that we're there so sure it's fun though. yeah that's yeah. really that's really cool another thing that I've I've read about on your website specifically mm-hmm. is talking about the commitment that you guys have to becoming more sustainable, becoming more eco-friendly. Um, and they'd love to know kind of what sorts of things you guys are doing, you know, both on the farm and in the shop to kind of, uh, I guess, uh, initiate that. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we were doing in the shop specifically, we've actually, so we'll host little events and get togethers and like, we've got a holiday party in like a week and, you know, people bring food and stuff and we've actually eliminated, um, or we're at the very tail end of eliminating the single use plastic, like utensils and cups and stuff. And, um, so we're moving over to kind of a more sustainable option there with like actual like plates and cups. And we just, you know, take them home and we, you know, wash them through our dishwasher and stuff and it's because it's really easy just to like run to the grocery store and just pick up whatever you need right so we're taking that extra step um we just recently we stopped using plastic bags here um we're now using recycled paper shoppers which is really nice but we also have an incentive for customers if they bring their own shoppers um their own shopping bags and we give them like five to 10 cents off of a, off of their purchase if they bring their bag just to try to like, you know, lower our costs, but also lower the fact that they've taken another paper bag home and they've just like stuffed it in their pile of paper bags. Um, in, in the case of the sheep, we we're trying to lower our kind of carbon footprint, right? We, we import a lot from England, which is you know, tough, but we also really strongly work with a lot of American companies and specifically for our own like flock yarns, we work with a mill that's about 
30 minutes away from the shop. Um, and it's owned by a small, it's woman run and it's owned by a small family that I actually grew up in 4-H program with. And so it's a really cool thing. So we're trying to kind of close the you know, close how far we're going to get stuff processed with our own sheep. So like our shepherd lives right down the road and our mill is only 30 minutes away. And, you know, we try to kind of stop doing a ton of like travel and, you know, shipping it off to faraway places to have it kind of brought back. That's always been a big thing. Like we, you know, if you have a resource near to you, why would you pay to have like UPS, like ship your wool far away and then, you know, kind of send it back because, if you know if there's a great mill around you you should utilize them so i mean there's things that we're trying to do we, just the fact that we only really sell wool um i feel like is a step towards sustainability right we work with a lot of transparent companies so we're we're uh, brooklyn tweed and quince and company stockists and then we work with a lot of small farmers in england um, like dalton border lester and we work with West Yorkshire spinners and like the great thing about the UK, like I said, is all their wools tracked. So you know that it's only coming from UK farmers. It's not, you know, it's not coming shipping from far off places. Right. And so, um, you know, we're not a traditional yarn shop. We only have one yarn that is, we only have one yarn that has acrylic in it and it's made at our last large scale mill in Pennsylvania. So we feel as though we're, you know, supporting our local economy in that sense. And other than that, we're, we're 100% wool and we don't actually carry any superwash except for sock yarn that we get in from West Yorkshire spinners and then a local woman down the road. So, you know, by kind of working with the more natural fibers and trying to encourage people to work with the natural fibers and talking about the amazing benefits of wool, I feel like in the long run, we're going to be, you know, we're going to create a more sustainable environment, um, overall. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like a tough thing because you feel like you do all of these things, but at the same time you you lay it out and you're like, oh, well, I guess it's, you know, it's not that much, but it's one of those drop in the ocean, but it makes a difference sort of things. So we're also looking to um, kind of work on our carbon sequestration at the farm. So we actually just, um, we dug up the entire ewe pasture and we reseeded everything with a stronger rooted grass. And then we're going to go through and we're going to plant a few options of uh, perennial grasses to try to improve our carbon sequestration overall, which I think is going to be really important as well for all, all parties involved, the sheep and us, you know. So the small steps, but I feel like they're going to add up in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that you guys are such a unique shop in having primarily just wool product. I mean, that's very unique. And then even makes the 10 years more impressive on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, that's so, that's so cool. I didn't even know that about you guys. So that's really, yeah. that's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And I will say, you answered my question. I'm going to ask if all wool is traceable in the UK. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. That's yeah. What I, that's what left my head. Because um, I know Australia does it. Yeah. And the UK does it. And for some reason, we don't feel the need to do it here. I'm not entirely sure why, but think that they're because I mean we're such a new country right like we feel like we're like this really old country like oh 1776 or you know the 1600s when the Puritans were coming over but I mean England had been around for 
centuries before that. And the wool industry had been around for centuries before that. And so I think it's just that we're a newer country. I think there is a shift starting to happen where it's going to, you know, we do have regulations on the textile industry. Like we do have to put certain things on our yarn to make it saleable through the government, you know, and have, you know, the taxes and all of that be legit through it. But I think that people are starting to come back and care a little bit more. And so there might, you know, there might be at some point a time to say, if you produce over X amount of pounds of wool, it must be rung through with the government because, you know, who knows? I, you know, I think, I think people want to see that kind of transparency in, especially in an industry like this, like how do you, why do you want to justify that a skein of yarn costs $25? Well, it's because here I can show you the farmers it came from. I can show you the mill it was spun at. I can show you all of this. And I, you know, I think that that's, it's coming back around. And I think we're having a resurgence of people that actually want to know what they're putting on their bodies and want to know what they're working with. And it's an interesting concept because over the 10 years, I mean, we've seen, we're seeing that shift happening right now. So. Yeah. Which I, I love that. And I, I think yeah. you're totally spot on with, you know, why would you justify spending X number of dollars on a skein of yarn? It's especially if you are like myself, primarily a sweater knitter, you know, like you're right. really investing a lot of money into that. But if you have something tangible to go back and say, well, it costs this much because this, because of all the stuff that we do for our animals or, or whatever. I mean, I think that, you know, it's so much more of an incentive and could really help out those small producers in the long run. Right. And I feel as though social media is totally helping this because instead of just going, oh, well, I raised sheep. Well, okay, like, what does that mean? But you can just go, well, here's my Instagram. Look at my stories. You know, watch me out there at 6 a.m. breaking the ice off of the water bucket so that my sheep have fresh, you know, and like watch the shear, like shearing the sheep. And so it's just kind of allowing that transparency to be even more prevalent. And it is, I feel like it's helping with that concept of, you know, we ourselves are small producers. Our sheep are small producers. We only have 25 to 30 head, but even people that have 150, it sounds like a lot, but it's not, you know, and, you know, we're paying a local mill. So we're, you know, we're paying for that. So I think it's just that like the, the local traceability thing, I think is really coming back around, which is awesome. And I feel like, you know, Instagram is a really good kind of catalyst for all of that as well. Yep. Yep. I would totally agree with that statement also. Um, so what do you guys have coming up for I know you said that you have a holiday party in a week but mm -hmm. you guys have like other big events that you guys usually kind of hit along the line or any big plans with the yeah. new property or yeah we're very excited to be rolling out some kind of we call them on the farm workshops right um so we actually back in the day before before we had sheep and before my mom was importing yarns, we actually naturally dyed like um, like silk garments for like a little boutique. Um, oh, so cute. yeah, so it was like a lot of fun. So we want to kind of get back to like the stuff that we used to do before we had all this extra stuff. And so our on the farm workshops, we want to, you know, we, we want to talk about kind of like foraging your color and then, you know, using that color on something and um, do wet felting workshops and, you know, 
breed talk workshops and you know mm. history days and all that kind of stuff so we're we're looking we're going to roll out a few classes for 2020 and then hopefully like as we get more accustomed to the working in the space we will be able to kind of add more options and we just hosted our first little event at the farm last Saturday we had 14 very brave knitters and fiber artists come out and we did a little evening farm party with some tea and some snacks and um you know some knitting and we've we've got a few barn cats that were hanging around (laughs) um they the knitters came to meet the sheep and also to uh hear rachel brockman she's a knitwear designer out of north carolina who we work with very very closely rachel was at the farm as well um talking about her west river collection which she just released on ravelry last friday and it's four really beautiful garments that are designed in our yarn to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. Um, so that was really exciting. And so we it was great because we got a concept of like, okay, if we're hosting like a lecture style event, this is how many people we could fit. And we, you know, then afterwards we were setting up tables and we were doing like the spatial, like, yes, this is how many people we could fit for a dyeing workshop and a wet felting workshop. So we're very excited to keep expanding that. And um yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're very excited. We also have more uh, kind of commercial yarn developments happening. We, we have our own, um, York, we call it Yorkshire Medley. And so because we only have 30 head of sheep, uh, we want to have the long wool yarns come to a larger market. So we actually import the raw fleeces from England, and then we have them custom manufactured at commercial spinning mills for us and then my mom hand dyes everything so we have 16 we have 15 dyed colors and one natural and it's a DK weight so we're adding another weight to the line to release at Maryland 2020 to celebrate five years of Yorkshire medley Uh, so that's really exciting Um, we're looking forward to that so that will be a fun development, and we're trying to see if Rachel can bang out a really great pattern um, <laughs> in May. So we'll see about that. So those are kind of the exciting things we have going on. Um, it's winter, so we're hunkering down and planning. You know what I mean? Sure. And all your ducks in a row for the spring. So oh my gosh! But you guys have such cool ideas. Like I, I'm really. I'm really excited for you and a little bit yep. sad that I live so far away. I know. You'll just, we'll just have to get an excuse to bring you out here. We'll find something. <laughs> so if people want to find you online, where can they do that? Yeah, you can find us on our way of a website, uh, flyingfibers.com. And you can also find us on Instagram. Our handle is at Flying Fibers, or you can also follow my mom, which is Flying Fibers Jerry. Um, and so we're on Insta there. We also have a Facebook, which is definitely a lot more of our yarn shop. Um, and yeah, that's probably where you could find us. <laughs> we also okay. have a Ravelry group, but Facebook and Instagram are our biggest things. So, okay, perfect. Well, I'll link to all of it. Well, Irina, I thank you so much for, you know, taking all the time to kind of run through all this with us. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it's been wonderful chatting with you as well. I'm glad we connected. This is great. (laughs) As always, remember that you can find links to many of the things that we spoke about today, including what the Scrapey epidemic was on my website at www.woolanddye.com slash podcast. Until next time.